we, I think, learned that we have to fight for our business. We're the ones that are going to believe in what we're doing more than anyone else. And it's no longer about ego. It's going out and convincing someone to believe just as much as us. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we're going to dive into the world of food and emerging CPG brands as we sit down with Teresa So, the co-founder and co-CEO of Pipcorn. Teresa, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to tell our Pipcorn story. Well, I want to dive in right to that story. So what inspired you to leave the corporate world and pursue entrepreneurship? Oh, man. Um, (laughs) Thinking back to those corporate days, you know, I just, I got so sick and tired of working with these huge CPG companies, you know, Pepsi, Frito-Lay, Walmarts of the world, to really just get them to be richer. It just didn't feel fulfilling whatsoever. And I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to partner with, you know, my husband, Jeff, and his sister, Jen, around this idea, Pipcorn. And it was just something that I had been wanting to do. I wanted to go out and do my own thing for a very long time, but never found the right opportunity. And, you know, I think with Pipcorn, it's something that was so special because it was an authentic idea. And it was something that we weren't trying to force out into customers. And so that's, you know, a big reason why I made the jump. So yeah, and I'm, I can, I'm definitely excited to share about sort of the, the beginnings of Pipcorn, why that idea, um, I think, was was so important for brands as they launch today is that there's a there's a reason for being um, it's not something manufactured you know that we're trying to just make a lot of money for I think Pipcorn is something that we all feel really um, deeply is deeply important and we want to make change in our industry with with a with heirloom corn <laughs> lofty goals lofty goals but all around heirloom corn. So, you know, as you think about your background and where you came from with business and investment, how did that prepare you for the role at Pipcorn and the the crazy journey you guys would be on launching the business? I would say I've learned so much more in the last 10 years than I did 10 years working on, you know, Wall Street and finance because nothing is straightforward. Everything has twists and turns and you have to be able to problem solve to be able to continue moving forward. I do think the one the, the one thing I did learn through my career in finance is the problem solving skill. I think not not allowing failure or something that was hard or not straightforward to be able to to stop you in terms of what you're doing. That 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 was the hundred hour late night um, like hundred hours that I would be working, you know, at UBS or Morgan Stanley, just trying to figure out a model, you know, for for Campbell Soup, for instance, you know, when they were looking to acquire another brand, being in that situation where you're extremely tired, you haven't, I, I had slept for probably three days at that point, and to not give up and to really dig deep, um, I think it's the number one skill I learned. And that has been helpful in the last, you know, eight years in trying to build Pipcorn. So thinking about that story, you know, there's uh, been a fallacy in the world of business of the dangers of starting a business with friends or with family. But you uniquely, as you mentioned, started not only with your husband, but also with your sister-in-law. How has that actually turned into such a strength for the business? 
Yeah, I think it's something that has made Pipcorn so special is that I have two partners that are not only just business partners, but like partners in life. And it's allowed us to have deep trust in each other. You know, you hear a lot of stories about co-founders that part ways or they don't see the the same trajectory for the business, you know, down the road. And I think with Pipcorn, Jeff, Jen, and I were so aligned personally that it allows us to be aligned professionally and just focus on growing the brand. We don't have to deal with the undercutting or the, um, you know, feeling that maybe the partner isn't um, trying to help and move forward with the goal altogether. I think the three of us, because of that foundation and relationship, we can just be laser focused on growing Pipcorn. So when you think about growing Pipcorn, what have been some of the biggest milestones over the last eight years of that business? Yeah, I think I think about them in like our business in three phases. And I think there's been specific milestones in each of them. So the first, I would say like three years of our business was really around brand building. We started this business purely out of the idea that this heirloom corn that we had discovered tasted better than any other popcorn anyone else had had. And we knew that other people would want to eat it. You know, there wasn't a lot of business plan around it. It was purely because the product was great. And so the first three years was really around proving that out, proving that there was a market and a customer looking for our heirloom popcorn. And I think Shark Tank was really that milestone for the brand building part that we were able to get onto that stage, make a deal with Barbara Corcoran, have Mark Cuban eating our popcorn. He was inhaling it. He couldn't even offer us a deal because he was eating so much of it. I think in that that phase of our business, Shark Tank really was proof of concept that our brand should exist. I think the second phase of our business was really around what can we do growing our business in wholesale. You know, prior to that, we had just been a direct-to-consumer business. We were super grassroots, just selling hand stamp bags of, of popcorn directly to consumers at farmers markets, selling on our website. And so I think the second phase was really, you know, how does our product sell if we're not there talking to the customer? And really, really generating revenue around the business. And I think going national whole foods with our uh, two skews of popcorn was really the milestone that checked the box there. And, you know, we were, we were, there were three national popcorn brands at the time um, back in 2015, we went national and we were one of them. So I think to go from hand stamp bags, you know, at Smorgasburg in Brooklyn to, the national stage with the number one retailer and natural that was always our hopes and dreams of getting into was a huge, huge success for the brand. And I would say we're currently in phase three, which is we launched this company with the idea that we would have a family of heirloom snacks. So, you know, our company name is called Pip Snacks, but the brand is Pip Corn. And so we had always had these hopes and dreams that we would, we would see lots of our products in the grocery store. We looked at Annie's as really a North Star when we launched. And, you know, Justin and I were pretty naive, I think, when we got into this industry thinking that it would happen sooner. But I think, you know, we're so excited that today we're finally in a phase in our business where 
we do have a portfolio of snacks. And yes, it took, you know, five, six years of really building out the popcorn and the core customer, but waiting for innovation and doing it now, I think has really, really allowed us to be successful. And so I think the milestone today is of all of our products, the top three in our family are one in each product family. So all of our innovation is not just to innovate. It really is building on the on the story of Hipcorn. And so to see that in the data is so exciting to me that, you know, popcorn, cheese balls, corn dippers, all of our product innovation has really resonated and is now becoming such a driver into the future of what Hipcorn is going to be. With that, you talked about, you know, fundraising with Shark Tank being one of the first. But, you know, can you talk about the highs and lows of raising money as a CPG brand and, you know, how that ultimately leads you to Factory LLC? Yeah, so we, so early days, um, because we were mostly, you know, direct to the customer and given our background or Jeff and I's background in finance, we were always very laser focused on our gross margin. So we were really fortunate to be able to take basically the profits of what we are making from selling Pipcorn and just reinvesting it back into the business. So we didn't have the need to raise outside capital. You mentioned Shark Tank, Barbara Corcoran, she invested $200,000 for 10%. And that investment allowed us to, to take the packaging, the handstand packaging and, and make it into like a pillow pouch that we could fit in the wholesale channel. So she was, you know, really the only outside or angel investor, if you want to call it that, that put in put in money into our business. Prior to Factory, we had raised our we had generated lifetime sales that were roughly forty five times what we had raised. So, you know, we're quite scrappy, and I think that is what has built that authentic story behind our brand. You know, we were constant. We weren't just. We didn't have the luxury, you know, of sitting on millions and millions of dollars. Every decision we made, every social media post or any retail we partner with needed to make sense for our brand and be successful. And I think that that bootstrap history of our business has been a huge driver into building the brand that is today. You know, you mentioned factory. And so in... 2018, early 2018, when we, you know, had, you know, we felt like we were at a stage that we could start expanding on our portfolio of products. We, you know, Jeff, Jen, and I, I remember sitting down and we were like, what do we want? You know, if we want to go this route, if this is, if this is where we're going to go, we, we have to raise more money. You know, it'd be irresponsible of us just because of the expansion, the, the change in working capital needs to be able to keep sustaining the growth just based on gross margin. And so we made a decision in early 2018 to go out and start looking for investors. I would say, you know, I I led the process and was like, you know, I have, I, I have background in this, like we're all good. Right. Definitely not the case. I think we spoke to over 50 different investment groups and just kept getting no's. It, it was shocking to us because prior, you know, prior to 2018, we felt like there were so many yeses that were happening in our business, right? Like we got the yes from Barbara, we got the yes from Oprah, we got the yes from Whole Foods. And I would say going out and raising money, it was one of it was probably the first time that we were just getting consistent no's. And it was it was really hard. 
it was particularly hard on me because I felt like I was the one bringing that skill set into the into the you know group, and I wasn't able to be successful. So, lucky enough, I would say one of the last investors spoke to expressed a great deal of interest in terms of what we were doing. They were a they were based in South South Africa, but they were coming into the U.S. and focusing specifically on better for you. Brands. They had invested in a couple other brands that we were familiar with and respected, and we met them through uh, Circle Up, actually. So, you know, went down this due diligence process with them, really felt like we kicked it off. They really were aligned with our strategy, which I think, you know, to us was the biggest, biggest thing. Like, we're bringing in, you know, when you raise money, it's not like you're just getting a check and they walk away. Like, they are than your forever partner as you continue growing. So, you know, we were excited that we had met someone finally that was going to give us a yes and believe in what we were doing and, and write that check. Unfortunately, after like a five-month due diligence process with this investor up into the point of signing the legal documents, we had completely negotiated all of the purchase price agreements, we even, our lawyers even sent wire information to that investor. Just, we get crickets. I still remember being in the office that day where we were, you know, we, we had pushed our, we, we had planned our investment process so that we would have time and cash, you know, the cash flow to run up until when we thought we would close. And at the point where we just, didn't hear back. Something felt really strange. It was right before July 4th weekend in 2018, actually. Jeff and I were just sitting in the office like, what are we going to do? It basically took about another week and the investor kind of finally, you know, finally responded, came back and said that he, he didn't have the money. He had gone out and started a due diligence process with three different brands. Um, so it wasn't, he didn't just do this to us. And was simultaneously trying to raise his fund. And so when it came down to writing the check, he didn't have the $5 million that he had said he had. And we had flushed probably over $100,000 worth of legal fees and not to mention time. So it was heartbreaking for us. <laughs> but I think going back to what I mentioned early on in terms of problem solving and perseverance, and that's what I learned from, you know, my time and my stint on Wall Street. I think Jeff Jen and I were not in the office for like that evening. You know, we were traumatized. We were like, what are we going to do? How are we going to continue paying our employees? How are we going to continue making the products and get it on shelf? This is our reputation and this is our brand. I think we spent like an evening um, throwing ourselves a pity party, but then we were right back at it the next day making a game plan. So July 4th weekend, as we all know, you know, the investment community is dead. You know, everyone's on holiday. Half of New York is in the Hamptons. So um, we just took that time to basically regroup, create a smaller list of potential investors that we had had early conversations with before the deal died and just went back out, you know, and, you know, I think that for entrepreneurs, what's always really hard is you believe so passionately in what you're doing. You, you, you can't imagine someone saying no. And so having to be able to, having to go back to people that said they didn't believe in your brand was really hard for us, but we had to do it because we knew how much and how important Bitcoin was. 
And so we were, you know, we went back and had a conversation with Factory and, you know, we were able to turn something around and we closed a $6 million deal with them in March of 2019. So I would say our, our path to, to fundraising was 100% not what we expected at all. But I think it allowed us to, to actually grow as entrepreneurs and, and realize like, you know, we don't, we don't know everything. We don't have it. You know, I would say not that we, we, we necessarily have had this personality in the past, but I do think you, you hold your brand and your company just to such a high, I'm, I'm losing words. Sorry. Just thinking about the process actually makes me like quite emotional, but um, yeah, we, I think learned that we have to fight for our business. We're the ones that are going to believe in what we're doing more than anyone else. And it's no longer about ego. It's going out and convincing someone to believe just as much as us. And, you know, we're really fortunate that Factory and the team at Factory um, believes in what we're doing and, and that they've been great partners, you know, since we closed our deal um, over a year and a half ago. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So with that, what advice do you give to other entrepreneurs as they follow in your footsteps and go on the fundraising trail of what what should they do to help get through that process and learn from that? You're going to hear no's. I think I would say, you know, they're in every fundraise process, you're going to go out, it's people writing checks, right? It's money on the line. You're going to have people tell you that that this isn't for them. And you actually want that. I actually think that reflecting back and thinking about the deal that died, I'm so happy that they're not an investor in Pickborn because I don't think they would have been the partner we needed to get us, you know, get us to the finish line. So I would say advice is, you know, those are actually good because this person, this fund, this whatever it may be that your partner is going, you know, this angel investor, they're going to be in your business for a long time. And so you want them to say no if they don't really believe in it. Because in every brand, in every company, there's going to be ups and downs. Nothing is going to be, you know, all <laughs> rainbows. We all hope that they are, especially like this year, though, this pandemic, like, so many new things and new new um, struggles and challenges that you have to navigate and figure out. So I guess my advice um, would be that no's are a part of the process and that shouldn't get you down. That just means you're on a path closer to finding the right yes. So switching gears a little bit, you know, now that you, you have that funding, it's about marketing and how to drive, you know, consumption and velocity on those store shelves. What marketing have you find found most uh, effective as you communicate this message of why heirloom corn is better and tastes better and everything else? Yeah, I think for us, it's been just generating 
trial, as much trial as we can. And Ibotta has been a great platform and partner for us to do that, particularly now where we're in this digital world, people are shopping online. You know, we, we've been scratching our heads this whole year. How do we get people to order our products online when we were a brand that was pretty reliant on discovery in the grocery store? And Ibotta and other digital couponing platforms have been the avenue for us to do that by offering, you know, deep discounts, even if it's a free bag of popcorn, just to have them get it into their pantry and try it. Our repeat on Ibotta is like 90% plus because our products taste so good. And we believe so much in terms of the, the quality of ingredients that we put into to every bag. And so I would say from a marketing perspective, particularly this year, those couponing uh, programs are the ones that we put a lot of marketing dollars behind to generate trial. And then we know we'll have a loyal customer. And then they can start reading our story and discovering all of our products, whether through the packaging, through the back and our, the back of the packaging, you know, immediately consumers today, right? You go to their Instagram, see what this brand is about. You go to their website. And so we really feel like it starts with just getting someone to, to crack open the bag, try our cheese ball, and then we can really start, you know, educating them about all the things that we're doing, whether heirloom corn, the sustainability story behind it, all of our different products that they can find on shelf, our personal story being minority founders. And so that I would say this particular this year has been um, a huge marketing push. So you mentioned a lot of different channels there. You know, whether it's the marketing channels, the retail channels, you know, in a brand today, how do you think about an omni-channel approach and where do you place your bets as an emerging brand? Yeah, I, every, I think that the way we think about our marketing is that it needs to all be circular. It all needs to come together. So if you're, you know, and I kind of alluded to that given the, the, the Ibotta um, relationship that we have, but everything needs to really get your customer to have the full experience. And that's how you get them to come back because there's, there's so much being pushed at people, whether through social ads, even just like direct mailers. I feel like I've seen a lot of emerging brands start to do direct mailers just to get into the household. So I think that the way that we think about marketing is, Every inflection point needs to needs to be the consistent story. So whether they try the bag, the product itself needs to be what we've told them it's going to be. The social content needs to reflect who we are as a as a brand and tell an authentic story, all the way to to PR and you know the great opportunities that Covet has gone for us to you know be the faces of this business. And I think that's what these large CPG companies aren't able to do is a full, full circle. That's where we have power. So I would say, you know, Frito-Lay does a great job, I'm sure, getting, you know, uh, the best shelf, shelf space. But if you go to their social, there's no storytelling behind that. So I think we view our power to be able to make every aspect of it authentic and real. And that's how we're going to essentially take share from the big guys that are out on shelf. 
You mentioned the uh, the big players in the big industry, and it's kind of how we started this discussion was talking about your inspiration of leaving that corporate world. Why do you think the last decade has seen such an explosion of emerging brands that are challenging what may have been seen as the unchallengeable before with some of these big brands? I think that, well, one, I think that social media has played a big factor into it, right? You don't need huge marketing budgets to be able to to get your story out there. So I think having a channel to be able to have marketing in a much more affordable way has been a big driving force for many brands launching. But I think that it's seeing it's possible, right? Like with our heirloom corn, as an example, I mean, our corn has, our, our two family farms that grow our corn, it's been around for 400 plus years. You know, we didn't, we, went, we didn't just create this out, in, out of thin air. It's been there. None of the big companies have ever commercialized it because they're just worried about margin and obviously using much higher quality corn. Yes, it results in a much better tasting product, but it's also more expensive. And so I think for for us and for many of our founder friends, it's it's the fact that it's possible to make a difference and to go up against the big guys and, and make a dent and hopefully have and make them have change. You know, we we see some of um you know we see other brands like copy what we're doing, like, you know, and it's it's a compliment. And that's that's what we're trying to do. I think that's you know what we're, we're a lot you know most of the brands here in our in the natural industry are trying to do is just make change allow question what the big guys are doing um understand that they exist for a reason but show them that there's sometimes a better path to doing things and our crackers are a great example we you know you hear a lot about upcycling you hear a lot about brands that are thinking you know not used not used produce or ingredients and and make it into a product and so what we wanted to do with with upcycling is actually talk about our own waste that we were generating if you if you look at all the salty snack producers they're generating so much of their of so much waste that's just being thrown away in their own manufacturing process you know when we made when we make our extruded snacks we were creating uh, corn flour waste and instead of just throwing it out we were like let's find a way to um to reuse it into a very delicious product and make snack crackers and then be able to really shine light too on what's happening in, in our industry. So I think things like that for emerging brands, you know, we have the power to do it within our within our company, but I think also on the shelf of have have the large corporations also looking at what we're doing and realizing that they need to be better. The the number of companies that have been B Corp, for instance, like Kehi um, is B Corp, Thrive being B Corp, um, I think it's just movement in in our industry that that no matter what size you are, we all need to to do the right thing for not only our customers but also um, you know for the people working within that within the industry too. So I want to double click on that comment you made about the corn flour waste because you know one of the really you know, I think things when you look at a big company, you have your research and development team, you have your product supply that's doing the the manufacturing. You know, usually the R&D team's not going into the, the factory and seeing an insight like that. So how was it that you guys were inspired and saw that there was that waste happening with the corn flour and then decide to connect the dots into launching a new product with it? 
Yeah, no, I, that's a great point. And I think that's what makes, um, that allows teams, you know, teams like Pip, like Pipcorn, we're a small team. We all have our hands. Sometimes probably, we're, we probably are micromanaging too much. But I would say because we're so plugged into everything that we're doing, we're able to make decisions like that. So with the, with the cheese balls, when we went down and when we went into the R&D process to manufacture the cheese balls, what happened is, we wanted to make sure we were using our heirloom corns. We wanted to take the corn and, and mill it ourselves. We weren't just buying cornmeal. And through the R&D process with our mill, they were able to make this delicious corn grit, which is what we needed for our cheese balls. But 30% of what they were milling was just corn flour. So it actually happened um, at that stage, not at the actual extrusion at our co-packer. Um, so we were actually storing, like, you know, every time they would mill corn, 30% corn flour. We were, like, refrigerating and storing all this really expensive, high-quality heirloom corn flour with nothing to use with it. And our director of operations, actually, Chelsea, she's been with us for five years. She was like, what about crackers? It actually started as cornbread crackers, and then it's evolved into what you see on shelf today. But that's the power, I think, of 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 a brand like Pipcorn where, you know, it's a team of five and we're so connected to each other and we've all done every job of every part of the business that you can create these exciting and interesting ideas really quickly and then execute them so fast. Like the snack crackers, we went from idea to selling it in nationally into Whole Foods three weeks. Um, (laughs) It was crazy. And that's just how Pipcorn that's just our culture. It's like, you gotta, like, once we are on an idea that we are passionate about, like, we're all sprinting for it to make sure it happens. And so, yeah, so three weeks from literally, like, the one idea of, well, we have all this waste, what should we do with it? We can make crackers to, you know, getting that meeting with Whole Foods and and sharing with them R&D samples and getting them excited about what we were doing from an upcycle sustainability standpoint and then them partnering with us to go national and that hit shelves in April. So, yeah, pretty crazy actually to say that out loud, three weeks. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I mean, that's the heart of entrepreneurship. It's when you see something, you've got to go take it. So I love that. Thank you so much for uh, you know sharing the story. It's an amazing brand that uh, you know the three of you built and you know what you've created over the years. So thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. I mean, we um, every day we are Jeff, Jen, and I just talk about how lucky we are that we're in a situation where we can do what we're passionate about and what we love to do. I know, and you mentioned that you know you you saw our products out. Um, at fresh time and and you tried them, pick them up there in your pantry. I mean, that's what we live for is just that story of someone finding it, buying it, liking it, and then buying it again. So I know. Thank you for taking the time and showing interest in what we're doing over here. Oh, thank you for sitting down. We'll talk again soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe. So you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.